Psalm 67. God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word, this model prayer, this doxology we have before us. I pray that this sort of text will be a scripture that that sinks down deep. I pray that we will care about what you care about. I pray that you give us compassion for the lost and a passion to see you glorified among the nations. Work in these ways, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. My aim this morning is to sum up Psalm 67. Some of you are familiar with this. John Piper wrote a book around the, the fourth verse of this called Let the Nations Be Glad. I know I'm not the only one in here who was influenced by that years back. My debt to him in this regard is great. My aim, though, is a, is a, is a bit different. My aim here is to help you see that you should request, that you should rejoice that God will save the nations, both of those things. Let us request, plea, beg, and let us rejoice that God will save the nations. He will see to it. Before we get there, though, I want to remind you what happened in the beginning. I think this is a helpful way to see what should have been. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and when he was finished creating it, he looked upon it, and you remember What he said, he said, this is all very good. God was pleased for his glory was manifest in his creation. From top to bottom, east to west, all was good. And God placed the first man, the first woman in the midst of the earth in a garden. And he had fellowship with them. He blessed them. And the man and the woman were given dominion and rule of the earth as God's vice regents. And their job was to subdue the earth. That is, they were to add to the earth's glory. Think about that for a moment. Their job, their original job, is to take the stuff of the earth and add to the glory that was already there. It's a wonderful job description, don't you think? People are the crown of all that God created, for God made them with his image stamped upon them. They are higher in the created order than the plants, the animals, the plants... And the produce of the land, they were given to the people for food and the resources of the earth, the rocks, the gold, the various types of lumber, all that there is, is for the people that they may glorify God. The earth and its raw materials are theirs to steward, 
and to refashion in ways that suit the building of a good society. For the man and the woman were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what exactly is it that they're filling the earth with? They're filling the earth with image bearers who will also glorify God. And the ultimate aim is that God will be glorified through his creatures, taking up space in every corner of the globe. But Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good design. They exchanged the glorious and prominent place that God had given them for what amounts to a bowl of pottage. They succumbed to the temptation from Satan, and they gave themselves to his rule. Rejecting God's plan, they sinned and passed on this sinful nature to you and I and everyone there's ever been, except in Christ, of course. The people spread, and they took their sins with them. Their offspring spread over the face of the earth, and they covered the earth as God's design intended. But as they spread, they take their sins with them. And now these image bearers of God, they filled the earth, but with what? It's not the ideal picture that Adam and Eve might have first thought. The picture of God's image covering the earth is marred by sin, by rebellion, by worship of idols, satanic forces. That is, until Christ came. And he died and he reversed the death curse. And now, there are many of us, Christians all over the world, and we have Christ's image stamped upon us. If you were a Christian today, you might say that you were made after the image of Christ. If you're being sanctified, you're being more and more like Christ. So now the idea is that we are to fill the earth with people who have Christ's nature. And what do people with Christ's nature then do? They glorify God, not just by taking the things of the earth and honoring God, but by proclaiming his excellencies, by singing his salvation, by telling of his salvation to others. And this psalm is set before Christ comes, and we are sitting here with a text that pleads for God to make it so. The psalmist says, Lord, let the nations be glad. Let them have what I have. Fill the earth with the knowledge of your glory, as it says in Habakkuk. Fill the earth with the knowledge of your glory as the waters cover the sea. And if you think about it, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. He deserves the glory, the praise, the honor. It's his. It's only do him to be glorified in every corner of the globe. And in one sense, that's always true. God does not bow down to anyone. But there are a number of places in the world right now where he is not worshipped as king. He is rejected as king. But as this psalm suggests, as this song prophesies, one day that will all be different. All the peoples will indeed praise him. So let's look at this psalm together. Before we get in, a few notes about the psalm. First, note the nature of the psalm. It's a model prayer. It's a doxology. 
It's an invocation, which is a prayer. The psalmist cries out in prayer to God, so this is really a request. Much of it is a request. And at the same time, the psalmist is beckoning us to join him. It's praise. It's liturgical praise. And upon reading it, you can sense this is poetry, for there's something musical about it, isn't there? When you get the chance, read over this again. You'll sense the rhythm and the form, and that's purposeful because it makes it stick. Note also that there is no command attached to this poem. It's just descriptive. It's prayer and it's praise. It's not telling you, believer, that you need to do any certain thing except praise and pray along with him. But he does so from the standpoint of calling us to model after him. So that's what this is. It's a model for us. My aim is that you will imitate this psalmist. He has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He has experience in the faith, and he has been made glad. And as he writes, he praises, and he sings, and he calls us into his joy. And last note before we dive in. Note especially that verses 3 and 5 are identical. This is helpful because being that there are seven verses, verse 4, right in the middle of the psalm. And the fact that 3 and 5 are identical, they kind of sandwich verse 4 right there in the middle, and it highlights it. And your eye just sort of naturally goes to verse 4. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That is the heart, the theme, the central desire of the psalmist. So let's now look at this in three headings. These are observations. Again, we want to imitate this psalmist. First, imitate the psalmist's prayer. Imitate the psalmist's prayer. Note especially verses 1 and 2. The psalm begins, God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us. Immediately, as he approaches God, he recognizes his place. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The psalmist acknowledged he does not deserve any good thing from God, and he begins by lowering himself. Next, he asks for the blessing. Bless us, and he tags on. Make your face to shine upon us. So the psalmist is, is asking not just for himself, but all of corporate people of God, that is Israel. Make your face shine upon us. He's asking God for favor. He sees God as the one he can turn to. No one else can bless him. God's blessing is what matters. And if God's face shines upon them, nothing can harm them. Surely the, the psalmist is asking to be blessed financially with good crops, good harvest, to be kept free from foreign enemies. But the psalmist is, is surely asking for even more than this because he wants the presence of God himself. Make your face shine upon us. There's something intimate there. I want you to face me, Lord. I want relationship with you. For if you are by my side, if your face is looking towards me, what are my enemies going to think? Remember Moses as he went up on the, on the mountain and he came down after being in the presence of God. He, he shone. No one wants to mess with the guy whose face is shining from the presence of God. Make your face shine upon us. 
And this request, it's an echo of Numbers chapter 6. This was a priestly blessing. The Lord spoke to Moses and told him to bless Aaron and his sons, saying, this is the way you shall bless them. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. This is a blessing for the priest. The priest then, what do they do with the blessing? The priests are the people who serve the people of God. So the blessing is not just for the priests alone, that they'll be set apart, that they'll be special. The blessing is so that the priest will then turn and bless the people of God. They are to be holy people, servants. And that's exactly what the psalmist does in Psalm 67. It's the same sort of turn. Notice verse 2. Why do we want God's face to shine upon us? Verse 2, so that your way may be known, your salvation among all nations. And this is a prime model for us, isn't it? This is how we should think and pray and live. This is what holiness looks like. Do you want to be holy? This psalmist is like David. A man after God's own heart. He wants God's name to be known in the world. He's saying, in effect, bless me, God, and and I won't hoard it. Bless me so that I can then turn like the priests of old and bless people. Believer, do you think like that? When you pray, whatever it may be, When you ask for a blessing, is it in line with the heart of God like this? Do you ask for financial stability that you may better honor God? Do you ask for a job or new position so that you may better honor God with it? Do you ask for a spouse so that you may better honor God? All of our prayer requests should have this this glory of God at the forefront of our hearts. Such prayers please the Father. They are in line with the way Jesus taught us to pray. Jesus taught his disciples to put God's name first in their hearts. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's God first. Interestingly, Jesus also taught a version of bless us and make your face shine upon us. Jesus said it like this. He taught them to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Later he says, lead us not into temptation. If God answers those prayers, that is his face shining upon you, believer. So this is not a new teaching in this psalm. It's not a new type of prayer. It's in line with many other prayers like it from beginning to end of Israel's existence. The aim was that they would bless the world. And so the psalmist is asking to be blessed. Remember, God commissioned Solomon to build a temple in Jerusalem. And the temple was a place to make sacrifices to go seek God for the forgiveness of sins. The temple was a place to commemorate God's goodness to the Jews, but it was also an instrument to attract the nations. King Solomon, 1 Kings 8, 
In his dedication, he prayed that this would be the case, that the temple would be used of God to show the nations how great the God of Israel really is. He prays this. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in his ways. And then he goes on, and then he says it, and here's, here's that pivot again. That, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. John Calvin says this, every benefit which God bestowed upon his ancient people was, as it were, a light held out before the eyes of the world to attract the attention of the nations to him. That's the idea behind the blessing of God. That's what what the psalmist is calling for. Bless us that we may turn and bless the nations. Have you been blessed, believer? You might, surely you have. Do you wonder what you ought to do with your blessing? Perhaps it's financial. Perhaps it's some sort of gift or opportunity. Consider this psalm, how it may direct you. God blessed Israel in order for Israel to bless the nations. And we should follow the same pattern. May we imitate this model prayer. The second heading is this, imitate the psalmist's joy. Imitate the psalmist's joy. This is verse 3 and 5. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. This is a plea. And then verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. You are the terms here. When it says peoples, you might think at first that's bad grammar. It's not. This is, this is meant to be like people groups, ethnic groups. Let all the ethnic groups, so not geopolitical nations, but ethnic groups. May all the ethnic groups of the world praise you. The latest stats from Joshua Project say there are 17,000 or so people groups in the world. And that, that's... That's how they divide it up. Others are going to divide it up differently. They suggest 17,000. And then currently there are 7,000 or so that are classified as unreached. That is, these people do not know Christ. They do not have access to the gospel. In Matthew 28, you see... You see the call for us to disciple the nations, same idea, ethnic groups. And in verse 4, when it says judge, that doesn't necessarily mean judge, like at the courthouse judge, but ruler, governor. So what's happened to this poet for him to break out in this sort of singing? Look at what he desires. This is what I'm hoping for myself. This is what I'm hoping for you. Something has happened to him. He has a compassion for others, and he has a desire to see God honored. The psalmist wants God to get glory. He's pleading with him to make it so. But there's that word, let. Let the nations be glad. We often say let like we would use the word allow like, I let my child have another cookie. I let them stay an extra hour. It's, it's a little softer, I think, than what's going on in verse 4. This is stronger than that. The psalmist is not simply asking to allow the peoples to praise you. 
Rather, he is asking God, make them praise you. He's, he's telling God, bring them to join you in your glory. As my old pastor used to say, he would translate it this way, the peoples must praise you, O God. All the peoples must praise you. I think that's closer to the idea here. It's not a passive, it's not a soft thing. This is, this is a, there's a lot of commotion here. He's serious about this. The psalmist is fired up. Some translations translate it as, let the nations shout. Why is the psalmist fired up? I think it's because he knows what is good. He's seen what's out there and he recognizes that God is better than the alternative. He recognizes what is evil and he's moved to proclaim that God's ways are higher than man's ways. God's rule of life is superior. When he governs a people, there's reason for gladness. No God is like the God of Israel. So bless us, God. Bring others to see your goodness, God. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you, God. Let the nations be glad. Let them sing for joy. For you judge the peoples righteously. We don't have anyone like that, God. You govern the nations on earth perfectly. We don't have anyone like that, God. He's fired up. And I know not all of us are fired up all the time like this psalmist is. Well, let's not make excuses for ourselves. We should have this joy in us that, that moves us to praise. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. We need to work and cultivate towards this. We sung together this morning. I have no doubt that there was joy and gratitude but I suspect that a number of you wish that you could be even more full of joy. Even if you have it, you want more of it, and that's a good desire. We can add to our joy in this lifetime. So how? How do we add to this? How do we become like this psalmist? One way is to look backwards. Scholar Jim Hamilton, written on the Psalms, He looks at Psalm 66. When he preached this psalm, he preached it along with Psalm 66. If you want to praise God, look at Psalm 66. Look at what that's all about. All of Psalm 66 is just a recounting of God's good deeds. These psalms shed light on one another. And this is what we should do to add to our faith. Remember how God has acted in the past. Sometimes you might think of personal examples Other times you may recall something from the life of Jacob or Joseph, perhaps from your neighbor, your mother, or someone else. There is joy to be found in recounting his wondrous deeds. The opposite would be to sit around and recount all the bad deeds that people have done to you or that you have committed to others. That's the opposite of what we are aiming at. Don't recount the bad, recount the good. What has God done for us? Let that cultivate joy in our hearts. We're not here to listen to the evil one. We're here to proclaim the excellencies of God. And this cultivation of a joyful spirit is at the heart of this entire psalm. And before we can muster up that energy 
to proclaim, let the nations be glad, we need to experience this for ourselves, don't we? Before we pray, your kingdom come, we should pray that God's kingdom would first settle in our own hearts. Thomas Watson, that great Puritan writer, says that to pray your kingdom come is in part to pray that his kingdom of grace would settle, would make its place in your heart. He says this, when grace comes, there is a kingly government set up in the soul. Grace rules the will and the affections and brings the whole man into subjection to Christ. Then he says this, it kings the soul. When When the kingdom of God comes into your heart, There's a king there, and it settles. And he says that the king sways the scepter. That's a wonderful image, isn't it? The Holy Spirit is is waving the scepter, for Christ is in your heart. And that scepter waves in your heart, for Christ is king and he's in your heart. And now, from that experience, the psalmist moves outward And he says, oh God, may I not be the only one with the king in my heart. Oh God, let other people experience this. This is our model. And how often in the New Testament do we read the command to rejoice? Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. This is part of our job, literally. As Christian disciples, we are to be people who are joyful, not curmudgeons, So many people live in fear. Christians have no right. You have no right to live in fear. No excuse to live in fear. We do at times. We need to repent of that when it happens. Other religions have good reason to live in fear. The Hindus, they have many reasons to fear. If they lose their idol, what are they going to do next? Or if they're contemplating the next life, They're contemplating what they might be reincarnated as, hoping they don't become reincarnated as a cow or or some other animal. The Muslims live in fear. I've never met such fearful people. I have compassion for such people. I heard of a woman recently, believed in karma, secularist, and for an hour... She tried to move a bug very carefully out of her house and take it just very delicately so that she wouldn't kill it and tried to lead it and she kept having trouble capturing it because it kept escaping. And for an hour, in order to garner up good karma, she tried to get this bug out of her house. So why did you do that? She didn't say it, but you know, it's fear. She doesn't want bad karma Seculars, they fear disapproval of, of their neighbors, of their co-workers. And they go along with whatever, whatever the new thing is. We've seen much of that in our day. Thirdly, third heading, let's imitate the psalmist's confidence. This is verse 6 and 7. There is a mix here, if you'll notice in the psalm, a mix of, of tenses. I think that's worth bringing up because there's a mix of present and a future tense. Notice verse 4 says, you shall. 
rule the peoples, or you will. And then verse 6, the earth will yield its increase. The earth shall yield its increase. In verse 7, you, God shall bless us. So these are things in this psalm, some of which have happened, some of which will happen. I think the idea is that God has blessed his people and God will bless his people. There's a promise, too, to close the psalm, all the ends of the earth will fear him. So it will happen. So the psalmist is predicting something here. Notice verse 6, the earth shall yield her increase. That is, the earth will bear fruit. Farmlands will produce an abundance of crops. Livestock will multiply. The economy will grow. And what's the point? Well, the point is, is that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. The point is, is that the earth is God's. He causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall. And he may indeed cause these things to happen to, to even unbelieving nations or peoples. But here in Psalm 67, it says, God will make the earth yield its increase. And the implication is, so that you will be feared among the nations, so that you will be worshipped among the nations. It's a promise because it's attached to this end times prophecy that all nations will praise God. Remember Jesus, he tells us, pray for whatever you wish, pray in my name. And he says that he will answer it. So if your aim is to honor God in the world and you pray in accord with that desire, the implication is God will answer it. The earth will yield its increase. If you are seeking to honor God, to make his name known among the nations, he will give you what you need. He will see to it that your country is blessed economically so that you can make his name known. This is similar to that idea in the Lord's Prayer again. Give us this day our daily bread. Why may we have our daily bread? So that we can make your name hallowed. So that we can advance your kingdom. What makes this psalmist confidence? Because we want to imitate this confidence. We want to assume that God is going to save a remnant from every people. But what makes this psalmist confidence so noteworthy is the fact that he wrote this in faith. He wrote it before Christ. He wrote this after seeing the failures of his Israelite forefathers. Israel had failed time and again to be a light to the nations. In Isaiah 56, speaking of the temple again, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Do you remember where that's quoted in the New Testament? Israel did not live up to that standard. In Jesus' day, things had gotten so bad that the temple had been turned into a marketplace. This temple that was to attract the nations. It was not a place of reverence or worship as it ought to have been. And when Jesus came into the temple, he overturned the money changers' tables and he rebuked them. And if you recall, what did he specifically say to them? Is it not written that my temple should be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
The Israelites, they wanted to keep God's blessing to themselves. They made it difficult for the Gentiles to come into the temple. They made it difficult for the poor to come into the temple. They exploited them. And unless we, we, we thumb our nose at them and think we're better than them, think of all these other places in Scripture that speak of, of people hoarding this knowledge for themselves. Remember Jonah? There's a whole prophet, a whole book of the Bible dedicated to this idea. Jonah ran away because he did not want the Gentiles to be blessed. This is in our sinful nature. It is. No one naturally seeks the glory of God on their own. We just can't. We're selfish. We fail at this. In the evening, we're going through judges, and if you go through judge by judge by judge, the judges do deliver the people of Israel, but all of them are flawed. None of them seeks God, even the kings of Israel. Which one of them lived up to this standard of God where they're seeking God's glory above all things? Saul didn't. Certainly not. David, he was a man after God's own heart, but, but he murdered, committed adultery. Solomon started well, did not finish well. Look at the kings of Israel. Which one of them sought God's glory? No one seeks God's glory. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The one man who sought the glory of the Father was the one man who came into the temple, looked around, and said, you are not allowing the Gentiles in. This is contrary to everything God has desired from the beginning. And he turned over the tables, and he demonstrated God's zeal that all peoples worship him, that the earth be covered with the knowledge of his glory. Jesus always sought the glory of the Father, even when that meant his own death. He was in the garden at night in Gethsemane, and he's praying, and he says, Lord, if you can, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. And Jesus obeyed the Father, and he went to the cross. And the good news for us is that he took the penalty that we deserve. He lived that righteous life. He is that righteous ruler of Psalm 67, verse 4, because he rules righteously. He cares for God's glory above all when none of us did. And he took that penalty that you and I deserve, he took it on our behalf. He took the shame, he bore the wrath, and by faith in him, you can now have his image stamped upon you and now once that happens he gives you a new heart a heart of flesh he removes the heart of stone gives you the heart of flesh and now by the power of that holy spirit in you you can glorify god with a pure heart we can sing to him this is why we gather and we can say lord i honestly desire your glory to spread among the nations but if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you cannot say that. It is a supernatural act to seek the glory of God among the nations. So praise God for Christ, that good example. Let me close with a few applications. Why preach on this? 
I preached through Zechariah some time ago, and in Zechariah, this theme is there. Why preach on this again? Well, um, I have four reasons, perhaps more, and I'll keep it to four. Firstly, God left us on earth for this work. There are a number of things that we will be able to do in heaven, and I look forward to doing those things, honestly. Building and, I'm sure, cooking and creating and all sorts of things. But one thing we cannot do in heaven is evangelize the lost and see sinners get saved. There will be no sin in heaven. So why are we here? We're here, in part, to evangelize. There will be a gathering of people in hell and a gathering in heaven, and there will be no middle ground where all these people can swim to one side or the other. No, it's over once Christ comes back. There's heaven and there's hell. We should have this burden, this, this burden that, that Paul had. We, we, are, we are not here to eat, drink, and be merry. We have jobs to do. Just as he gave Adam and Eve work to do, He has given his redeemed people a job to do, and that is evangelize. We have never seen a period of history in which there are so many options to evangelize. We have the tools, we have the resources, we have the finances. Second reason I wanted to preach on this is this. Many modern missionaries don't know their doctrine. This is a little personal, okay? I'm not saying that we at Grace Baptist Chapel have it all together or anything like that. But I am saying that I wish that there were more church planters out in the mission field who are precise and careful theologians. There are not many Reformed folk on the mission field. So if I get a chance, every once in a while, can't help it, with the permission of the elders, I'll preach on this theme. Third reason I wanted to preach on this we have great, um, great resources, won't belabor this one, one of which is English. The fact that you're an English speaker means you have more resources, more access to books, sermons, old resources, new resources, and we have a privilege, you might say we have a burden, we have an opportunity to do more good in our generation for the sake of the nations than perhaps any generation that's come before us. Much of what we can do is, 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 is see that some of these resources get put into other language. And last reason I wanted to preach on this is because it is part of the central fabric of the scriptures. So the poet here, the psalmist, Psalm 67, he is no, he's no killjoy. He's a happy guy. And he has seen what is good in his head is now held up high. And I wish I could be more like that, honestly. And he is proclaiming to us that we need to pray and rejoice that God will make his name known among the nations. And God will make his name known among the nations. There will be a remnant from every people represented in heaven. It's part of the fabric that we see in the scriptures. God deserves the honor and the glory from every ethnic group. And this theme must be apparent to us. This theme is written into every genre of the Bible. I may have quoted something from every part of the Bible um, this 
sermon, actually. Not positive, but this theme is in the law. It's in Genesis. It's in Numbers. It's, in, it's probably in all of them. This theme is in the major prophets. I spoke to you from Isaiah. It's in Zechariah. It's elsewhere. It's also in the minor prophets. It's here in the Psalms, which is the wisdom literature. This theme is in the New Testament, too, beginning to end. It's in the Gospels. We spoke from that. It's in Acts, certainly. That's what Acts is about. It's in the writings of Paul. It's in the writings of Peter. And it's the culmination of the end times. Revelation 5, 7, 21, 22. This theme is woven throughout the fabric of Scripture, beginning to end. And if that's the case, this theme, this, this, this desire of God should be woven into the fabric of our own lives. So let's pray together that God make it so. Father, we are grateful for your compassion. Each one of us is a sinner, and yet you have caused your face to shine upon us. And so many of us have come to Christ because of this favor of yours. I pray, Lord, even now, even in this room, that you cause your face to shine upon those who do not yet know you. And anyone who hears this online, I pray the same. And we also pray, Lord, that you will give us a zeal for all the things you have a zeal for, including your glory among the nations. We pray that you will raise up, harvest, raise up workers for the harvest field, for the fields are white. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.